0: This is Defender Radio.
1: Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of
0: Fur-Bearing Animals.
2: It's the week of January 13, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to Episode 115 of Defender Radio. We've got a great show lined up for this first regular episode of the year, talking with experts from various industries, including Leanne May Lee-Hilgert of Vaught Couture, Brandon Forder of Canadian Pet Connection, and Kemp Edwards of Ethical Profiling. As always, you'll be able to find out more about these guests in this week's Defender Radio blog at furbeardefenders.com. I'm also going to be asking for your patience, and perhaps your forgiveness, as for the first time, I'm coming to you as a non-smoker. My voice and my pacing may be a little off as I get through the next few weeks and my vocal cords remember how to breathe freely. For now, let's jump into this week's interviews. It's an ironic and sad truth that when you go to a pet store to get a fluffy toy for your four-legged friend, you may in fact be buying them the fur from another four-legged friend. With the lack of regulations on the importation of cat and dog fur in Canada, as well as woefully missing requirements for labelling, safely buying a fur-free pet toy may be harder than it seems. But as Brandon Forder, Vice President of Canadian Pet Connection in Oakville, Ontario, knows, being an ethical pet owner doesn't need to be hard if you ask the right questions. Brandon, an ethical vegan and supporter of APFA, joins us now to discuss this growing issue and how our listeners can avoid falling into another trap of the fur trade. Hey Brandon, we've been hearing about pet toys that have real fur, including dog and cat fur. Is there an easy way to know if a product contains real fur?
1: Well, um, the only true way to know would be to contact a manufacturer directly and ask specific questions pertaining to um, any kind of questionable um, part of the product, whether it's fur, feathers, or anything like that. Uh, problem in the pet industry is that um, not only is the labeling deceptive at best, it's uh, there, there is no regulation. Pet food manufacturers are not required to list the source of fur on any of their product packaging. So you could take, um, you know, a dog or a cat toy, like a furry mouse for a cat. And generally, there's just a barcode. Um, there's no product information to support that. Um, so, you know, contacting the manufacturer directly is really the only truly way to figure this out. Um, even if you ask, um, you know, the employees of the retail store that you're purchasing at, they probably don't know enough about the product to comment on it specifically. So I always remain skeptical when it comes to, um, you know, asking the staff of most retail stores, unless they've been in communication with the manufacturers directly. Um but, uh, it, it's, it's such a shame because labels, um, are very deceptive. Uh, you may see some products that would list, you know, faux fur or, um, you know, it'll say, um, uh, uh, you know, like genuine fur, things like that. But it's, it's very deceptive, you know, F- faux fur could mean nothing other than just, um, uh, sort, like a distraction tactic to, uh, to confuse the consumer. Um, but in actuality, it could be, um, uh, you know, domestic cat fur, German shepherd fur, rabbit fur. Um, so the labeling is something that's not to be trusted.
2: Is that something that at your store is important?
1: Oh, most definitely. Yeah. And actually when, when I was, um, uh, sort of thinking about, um, you know, uh, this interview, um, I contacted a couple of the manufacturers that I know that, um, that that, um that use um you know they use synthetic fur for some of their products and um i just wanted to question them and just see if they had any thoughts on um you know the fur trade and the the pet industry and it's funny that um uh, i shouldn't say it's funny it's kind of sad that um you know most manufacturers just don't even care um you know whether it's real fur whether it's fake fur so we have this kind of this this moral gap uh, from you know what a consumer's personal beliefs are and what the manufacturer's beliefs are, um, so that sorry that's a that's a very difficult thing to to figure out but um in in my my stores anything that I carry that has anything that looks like feathers or fur, not only do I uh talk to um uh, the uh the manufacturers about it, I also like to get it in writing that um that they guarantee that their products are uh free of any kind of animal product and everything is synthetic, or I just simply avoid buying any products that contain any kind of fur or feathers, and I find a suitable alternative that doesn't have those things in them um. I do try to avoid purchasing products from China as much as possible, but when it comes to things like pet toys, your options are extremely limited once you uh, once you try to avoid all products that come from China. So it, as a retailer, it does make things very difficult. But um, uh, there are always alternatives. You don't have to necessarily go with products that contain fur. There's dozens of other products that would still give your pet plenty of enjoyment that are not fur-based, whether it's real or artificial. So there's always alternatives if people get creative enough.
2: As an ethical vegan and a store owner, do you have difficulty not only balancing that? But then explaining to a consumer why you may not carry some products.
1: Yeah, and you know, consumer demand is a funny thing uh, because most consumers don't think of you know a furry mouse toy actually containing animal fur and maybe perpetuating the uh, the gruesome fur trade itself. Um, so I think consumers just don't have the kind of awareness that um, you know, say, people in the in the pet industry or those who take interest into uh, you know in it uh, on their own time. Um, so the demand certainly is there for things like you know furry mice, but um, once you have a you know a 30 second conversation and just explain to a client why you're taking this stance on avoiding you know products that have fur of any kind at all, or even um, you know fake fur, real fur, just finding alternatives. Usually consumers are pretty receptive to stuff like that, uh, especially when they get a little bit of a glimpse of the type of conditions that these animals in the fur trade um, have to you know have have to be a part of. In order to, you know, provide a dog or a cat with, you know, a little bit of enjoyment. Uh, once people get a little bit of information, they're usually very receptive at considering their alternatives. So, I find that being able to to educate uh, and just provide the information that's necessary is a really valuable tool. Um, but also, I recommend my clients. Um, you know, do your research. If you're ever unsure, contact the manufacturer directly and uh, and you know and and ask them you know the specific questions uh, that that you're looking for answers for. Because otherwise, you're not going to get the answers you're looking for on the product packaging. And um, in most cases, you're probably not going to get the answers you're looking for from the um, you know the employees in the in the retail store. So when in doubt, always contact the manufacturer or look for products that are. Um, you know, imported from countries that have um, uh, fur trade bans, you know, a lot of European countries and North American countries. Um, and so, you know, focusing on those kinds of things can give you a real advantage. Or just avoiding fur, uh, products that have fur of any kind, whether it's real or not, because there's always alternative products to consider that are conducive to your beliefs.
2: To get in touch with Brandon, visit his website at CanadianPetConnection.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors.
1: You're listening
2: to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at GatesWildlifeControl.com Or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org.
0: Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things Bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio.
2: We talk a lot about fur-free alternatives, and there are many. But one of the best options remains Vaut Couture. Designed by Leanne May Lee-Hilgard out of her shop in Brooklyn, New York, the fashion line quickly became synonymous with cruelty-free fashion. Leanne joins Defender Radio to discuss her background, her fashion choices, and the future of a fur-free world. Hi Leanne, how did you first get involved in fashion?
0: You know, when I was a kid, um, I was lucky enough to have parents that let me dress how I wanted, and that... It didn't matter if everybody else thought I looked ridiculous, which I did. Uh, I made my own puffy paint t-shirts with animal rights slogans on them. I made my own jewelry out of my easy Bake oven. Um, wearing things that were definitely not exactly what everybody at school wanted um, to wear. You know, they're wearing matching limited two outfits and looking very, very cool. And I was looking very homemade, uh, coordinated outfits that I just made myself. Um, And I think what's interesting is that, you know, at the time, it made me a huge outcast to cut my own hair. I did things that definitely, a lot of people were just like, what is she doing and why does she look like that? But later, it helped me really gain a sense of just doing what I felt I wanted to do. And for fashion and, and style, like that's what real style, I think, has to come from, is not from what you see in magazines and what you see on TV, but a sense of, like, what are you aesthetically uh, attracted to, and what do you think speaks to who you are and your personality? So um, so that was kind of my start, which is kind of a, a strange start. And I definitely was sketching a lot. I had a light, a little, like, light box for um, fashion sketches. I remember even doing a bunch of fashion sketches and wanting to be a fashion planner one day, but, you know, anybody who had known me at the time probably would have laughed because I looked ridiculous. Um, and then it wasn't until... At the end of college, I was scouted uh, by uh, for Ford Modeling and uh, Agency, and they signed me, and then I modeled with them for several years and learned how to the ins and outs of uh, castings and shoots and all of that while I was modeling in Chicago and then in Hong Kong and in Taipei. So that gave me a great uh, other angle to the marketing side of fashion, and then, yeah, I mean, things things went from there so there's a long I mean I think everybody has a long story in terms of you know the different elements of their life but for me fashion I guess is broken up into those two and then the third just being once I started the label moved to Brooklyn and you can wear whatever you want in Brooklyn so I've kind of found my fashion voice here where um I love vintage I love mixing 50s and 80s especially um and I love prints and stars and all different things like that. So it's just like curating a closet of stuff that's one of a kind.
2: What was your introduction to animal advocacy, and how did that meld with fashion in your life? So
0: uh, when I was six, there was a girl down the street who got a rabbit fur coat for Christmas. And I didn't know anything at the time about uh, anal electrocution or turf arms or any of those things, but I did know on a very basic level that there were rabbits who were dead, so that this little girl could have a coat, and that on a very general, uh, general level just seemed really wrong to me. So I got into animal rights, Then uh, I started reading, like, the, um, the different literature that my mom would get when she was donating to different groups, that um, she didn't really know a lot about the groups. And She'd give me, like, their stickers for my sticker collections, and it just got me thinking that there were a lot of things we were doing to animals that no one was talking about. And I wanted to know what those things were. So when I was 10, um, my teacher asked us to pick a topic for our, our project, our school project, for social studies to say, like, just any topic we wanted to spend a lot of time researching. Like, what was it that we wanted to learn more about? And I said, I want to know what we're doing to animals. I want to know how we're raising them for food, um, how we're testing on them, and how, we're, how we make fur. Like, how does that happen and where does that come from? So I picked for farming, back, uh, factory farming, and uh vivisection and um titled my project being Cool isn't cool ended up being one of the first t-shirts that i ever uh sold nationally when i was uh, i think 11 or 12 or was sold nationally actually i have a friend logasta who owns a vegan chocolate shop upstate she actually owns this t-shirt we didn't become friends until like 13 years later so we both had our businesses. but um but from that you know i i my life is is Raising awareness for animals, that's who I am. And I didn't go to school for fashion. I didn't go to school for business until um, after I'd been an education major, after I decided not to become a principal, and I realized um, that business was an amazing opportunity to make a difference. Because when I do something once, you know, I, if I do it as an individual, I do it once. But if I do something as a business, I'm choosing a certain way to do something, and that is done exponentially all of the time that it's done um, in that process. So basically, like if I choose the right fabric, and that fabric is innovating for animals, or it's made of recycled fibers, then every time that fa- that fabric is made into a coat, all of those coats that in itself are are exponential actions that I can be making, and then raising awareness, changing the way people see animals, and the way they see um, see the way that they dress, or eat, or or uh, live, and interact with the world. So. For me, once I realized that business was the way to go, I just had to figure out where was I needed to go. And not wanting to be a fashion designer, but wanting to know where could I use myself to the best of my ability to make the biggest difference for animals, I said, well, I've never had a warm winter coat. That was vegan, but was beautiful and I realized this wasn't just something that I had a problem with or that vegans had a problem with It was something that a lot of people and women had problems with in cold cities They just never felt like they looked like themselves when they had to get dressed up for a cold winter So I said This is the key if I create something that is better than what's conventionally out there. That I looked at how people have been traditionally making winter dress coats, and I say I can do something better. And it will be without using animal fibers. It will be, you know, using high tech fabrics. It will be something that will be innovative for the whole industry, not just something that's for an alternative lifestyle. Um, that would be my activism. That would be that would make it possible for me to say we don't have a reason left to say we need to wear animals. We don't have we don't have to, and we don't have to have an excuse to say that we need to wear them. So um, that's when I decided to start Vaux Couture. And I was modeling in Hong Kong at the time. So I had a good understanding of marketing for fashion and I had a lifelong, um, you know, experience and passion for startups and for running campaigns for animals. And I combined those two and I said, this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to. This is what I'm going to give everything to. So um, it's all one in the same. I didn't the animal animal rights, animal issues, did can come into my work. My work is from animal rights, animal issues, saying how can I serve the world, how can I serve the animals with who I am, with the experiences I've had in my life.
2: When you're talking about fashion in the media, or even just one-on-one, how do people typically react to your attitude about animals and their use in fashion? I, that's
0: a good question. I mean, you know, we were originally all online, and so I opened a store and then I was doing touring, like I'm now, but um, when you're online, you know, things are, you get into, like, a very niche, um, strong following of people who are supportive of what you're working on, generally speaking, because um, it's word of mouth, it's editorial coverage, we don't do any paid advertising, so everything is through people being excited and the support um, for, for the work that we're doing. I mean, we wouldn't exist without that support. I mean, there's no way that we would, um, but... Uh, in terms of how people react, there are certainly some people who may be a little bit uh, wondering if we're upset with them, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. Like I've been, to, I've been in interviews, press interviews with fashion before, where the girl shows up in fur. And she not didn't look at who she was interviewing until she got there and then looked at me and was like, Oh, geez, and gets really embarrassed. And what I like about that is that then I can I can then hmm, give her a new impression of her experience with someone who doesn't approve of her wearing fur. Because then I can talk to her like a person and talk to her about her family and where she's from and how she started working at this magazine, instead of going right, launching right into, you know, why it's wrong to refer fur, anything like that to make her feel bad. Instead, if I can let her come to that conclusion herself, you know, that, that's a whole different thing. So so when I spent my time instead letting her know, like, oh, she, she was so embarrassed, and I was just like, hey, it's, you know, it's okay. I know you didn't look and see who you are interviewing. Like, I understand. We talked about other things. I told her about how passionate I am about what I do. And then, you know, she followed up, like, three times with how embarrassed she was, how how, uh, how apologetic she was about, you Wearing, wearing fur wearing good animals um, to interview with me and I feel like it's so important that you lead by a positive energy and by a sense of knowing that everybody um, reaches needs to reach their their knowledge points on their own through finding it finding it in their experience with you um, without you, pushing it um, at them, because I, if I do that, then I feel like that's when people are like, oh, geez, what is this? This is like a whole different thing. It's nothing to do with me. But if instead I say, for all the people who love animals, for all the people who care about animals and have never even given it a, a thought that what they wear makes a difference, here is here is a brand, here's a lifestyle that can speak to you and can say, This is part of who you are. Allow yourself to care. Allow yourself to be inspired by making choices in your life that make a difference, that impact animals and the environment and people in the world. Don't feel like you need to be, um, you know, a a silent participant in these industries and these corporations and um, all of these things that have been set up as structures for profit that you haven't chosen to participate in. Instead, choose to make those choices in your life by what you wear and what you eat. that's kind of a message that I really focus on, and that's why we try to reach so many people who have never even thought about the the chance to be vegan, to dress vegan, or to eat vegan.
2: What should people know about fashion when it comes to making ethical choices? Well, I mean, fur. You know, you can find fur in
0: uh, everywhere. They put it in, put trim on everything, and a lot of times it's dog fur. not that- that makes any difference um but yeah there's there's fur on on you know they, they put it in so many different details on outerwear and so many different things sweaters and all of that too but um i think what people would be surprised about is wool um wool is a factory farm material and a lot of times people just don't know and they think about the way that wool is um, made in this idyllic sense and the same way they think about the way milk is made in an idyllic sense on a small farm and All those details. But the truth of the matter is that most of it is factory farmed, and then the sheep are sent to slaughter after anyway. So they're killed also, oftentimes through live export, which is an incredibly painful process. Um, But then there are additional uh, things that are done during the shearing process and during their, their life that are incredibly painful. And I think the most important thing to know when you think about fashion or you think about food production. Is that you know people will say it will suggest that I'm that I'm thinking that people who raise raise these animals in uh, in farms are being cruel, but it's not a matter of cruelty. There's no intention to be cruel. I think it's very important to make the distinction that these um, scenarios are just a matter of increasing profits and decreasing costs. And when anything gets in the way of those things in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, then those, those things are considered to be acts costs. cost. And when we're talking about live animals, those things are how they feel and how much it hurts them. Those things are considered extra costs for production, and so they're not considered. And that's why as a beast, a very cool processes, and they're slaughtered after anyway, but um, it's painful because it's live beings are not meant to be in production. You know, They're a living beings. They're living beings. They just don't belong. In a production process, to be part of a machinery, to be part of a cob, and that's why I love the Ghost in Our Machine the film so much because that just that name of the, the film, the concept is brilliant. You know, these this is this is our machine, uh, the industrialization of food and and fashion, all of that, where we've lagged in ethics and we've forgotten that living beings don't believe, don't belong in the machine of fashion and food production. Um, they, they're not, they should not be part of it because their needs and their well-being is not considered. Um, it's, it's just considered an excess cost. So, um, yeah, I think that those are the important points uh, that I run into. I always want to let people know that we're not saying that, you know, people who are producing fur or wool are intentionally being cruel. They're, they're just trying to be <laughs> effective and profitable, and animals don't belong in that scenario. They just do not because it's not, it's not one where their need can be um, considered properly at all.
2: How do you feel about the use of faux fur in fashion?
0: Right, this is a great question. Um, you know, I never wore faux fur most of my life because I never wanted anyone to think that I was wearing fur. Uh, I never want anyone to think that I think it looks good. Um, similar to how, and not the same, but similar to how, like, if someone says to me, well, why don't you use like vintage fur or whatever, something like that? And it's like, I, I would first of all, I would never, animals don't belong on our bodies. They just don't. And um, but, but side, even in addition to that, um, you know, if you're suggesting, if you're promoting a look of wearing animals, that in itself is, um, Something that I, I personally don't want to do. I, I'm not against anyone who does wear faux fur. Um, I did just when I did the Seoul show, the the show in Korea last year. Their first year of their show was all faux fur. They used all faux fur designers. And then this year they contacted me because they wanted to show a designer who wasn't just using faux fur, but was using other you know um, other materials, innovative materials to say we don't need to wear animals at all. And I've used um, colored faux fur before for earmuffs. Um, where it's clearly fake, like bright pink and bright blue earmuffs, um, because to me, if I want that texture of it being really fluffy, because that's what you want for an earmuff in terms of like comfort and look, but I, I want it to be very clear that they're fake. Um, that's been where I've where I've been okay and I, okay with it, and I've I really thought a long time before I decided to do that. You know, people a lot of people requested earmuffs, and I thought if I do that. I definitely don't want them to look like they're made of, of animals. Um, yeah, and so that's that's where I, where I stand. Uh, I obviously don't, I'm not upset with anyone who wears faux fur at all. Um, and, I, and if they do, I think that it's important that they wear like a faux fur pin or something. There are a lot of those HSUS pins that are hearts with fur and a cross um, over it. I think it's a good idea to wear something nice and big so that it's clear that that's not real fur. Um, We just never would want to encourage anyone to be wanting the look of wearing animals. We shouldn't be making that look luxurious. But then again, if someone wants to wear the look, I'd much rather them wear faux fur, obviously, than wear real fur. So um, that's, yeah, a complicated question and answer.
2: That was Leanne May Lee Hilgert of Vaut Couture. To learn more about this clothing line, visit vautcouture.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors.
1: You're listening to Defender Radio.
0: Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends.
1: Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbours by building compassionate wildlife communities, one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species.
0: This is Defender Radio.
2: When APFA is considering a new piece of merchandise for our store, the first person we call is Kemp Edwards. Kemp is the owner of Ethical Profiling, a company that specializes in ethically sourced and environmentally friendly products, ranging from clothing to office supplies to trade show giveaways. Kemp joins us now to talk about his company and why being an ethical business matters. Your entire business is about ethical choices. How did you get into that?
0: Well, I, was, I was in
3: the action sports industry for, uh, for a dozen years to begin with and um, found that very few to no companies were looking uh, at ethical purchasing decisions. They, they weren't really concerned with uh, factory audits um, or manufacturing audits to ensure social and environmental compliancy. That's still an issue, though it seems to be getting a, uh, at least on people's radars in the last, uh, I would say, five years. Um, but really, no one was working for more environmentally conscious materials. It was a, a balance of who offered the best price and made the best product, and those were really the only two considerations. Um, and it, it, it irked me uh, because, especially when I when I had kids and made me kind of reevaluate, uh, you know, what what industry I was working in and, and how could it be less harmful. Um, and I spoke with my boss at the time and suggested that we look into more environmentally conscious fabrics to work from um, and suggest that, you know, we look at factory audits and that sort of thing. And he wasn't quite ready to make the move yet, um, citing that that he was a not not a leader in the industry, and, and as such, you know, when the industry moved, he would move as well. And my suggestion was that would make him a leader. Um, and he had, has very ethical um, considerations in mind for his treatment of staff and his treatment of suppliers, um, but not to go to the level of actually employing a third-party auditing team or anything of that sort. Uh, so I left and actually started work in bioplastics, um, thinking, what could I sell to my current buy- purchasing group, which were action sports stores for the most part, um, that could be built better? Uh, so And I, you know, walked into their stores and just saw a plethora of plastic everywhere, um, realized at that time, you know, from talking to different groups, uh, I became aware of the, of the, the gyres and, uh, and other problems, you know, such as the, the obvious fact that every single piece of plastic that's ever been produced still exists on this planet, um, that, that there was a, a major opportunity here. Uh, so I started, I investigated bioplastics with, uh, University of British Columbia, the National Research Council of Canada, and a company called SolGear. Um, we engineered a, a bioplastic, uh, so a plant-based, 100% compostable, uh, 100% non-toxic plastic to be used um, in injection molding machines for things like sunglasses. And I worked with Vensil Manufacturing in Italy, who builds a lot of the big brands like uh, Von Zipper and Electric, um, to implement that plastic um, for use. Then the market bottomed out in 2007, just as I was about to launch um, and I decided to hold off on launching uh, before tangling a quarter of a million dollars up in uh, in physical product. I said, you know, maybe I can take the knowledge that I've learned over a year of doing this and, and investigating um, what it truly means to do ethical sourcing and apply it to um, my contacts in the industry. So I did some contracts with uh, with a few companies. That were already in the action sports uh, space um, and i built some organics programs for uh, burton and carrots and showcase whistler blackholm and uh, i did a contract with sitka and with west beach and um, then i ended up uh, getting in touch with uh, a, a company here in Vancouver, uh, that asked if I might be able to assist them in their discussions with the Hudson's Bay Company about ethical purchasing um, in recycled materials to build outerwear. Um, and that's something that I had experience in was winter clothing. Um, so I flew to Toronto, um, and I met with the Hudson's Bay Company, and uh, they ended up employing me to manage their B2B business. Uh, for the Olympics, for the Vancouver Olympics. And uh, as such, I got in front of Coca-Cola and Royal Bank of Canada and TransLink and Agreco and Athens Origin, um, all, all these different um, sponsors, and discussed, to, discussed with them what um, ethical purchasing meant and, and what those considerations were. It was certainly a, a main target of the IOC and VanOck, it was already uh, and remains very much on the radar of the big corporations such as Coca-Cola. Um, in fact, I would I would venture to say that their supplier guiding principles are probably the most stringent on the planet. Um, and uh, so our partnership made sense. We had, and I had developed um, some knowledge in recycled PET, which is uh, plastic bottles being recycled and then used as a fabric. And um, we were able to produce the greenest um, Olympic program in history for Coke. We built the whole thing out of uh, out of recycled plastic bottles, and have most recently done so again to build their program in Russia. So that was kind of my my intro, and then from you know from there, coming out of the uh, I built Ethical Profiling. I, I started that company. Um, to contract to Hudson's Bay Company so that I wasn't personally under contract, although I did end up doing that as well um, in the end. But I had two contracts running with the Hudson's Bay Company, one with myself and one with Ethical Profiling. And um, and then when I came out of that, all of the, the corporate sponsors that I was working closely with and had been for a year asked if I would continue to work with them in a capacity that didn't involve Hudson's Bay Um, There was no conflict of interest because HBC is a a retailer and, you know, really had no interest in trying to develop a a B2B business model anyways.
2: We hear a lot of people talking about fur being environmentally friendly, even though the statement, fur is green, was outlawed in several countries. How did you come to the conclusion to not use fur?
3: Well, uh, you know, I'd had some experience in working with um, with synthetic furs. previous to my experience of building my own company when i worked with uh with uh, arson and orb um, there were certainly some some jackets that had uh, some winter jackets that had a synthetic fur trim Um, to me i'd never really thought as to you know why would you want to use real fur i couldn't see any distinct advantage to having it Um, in fact if anything there were more consumers um certainly, at that time, revolting uh, against the idea of of using real fur. Um, and I think uh, ironically, the word revolt uh, is is almost uh, perfectly appropriate because I think they were actually revolted by the uh, concept of using real fur. Um, and what I looked at at the time was were were there any benefits? And interestingly enough, it came up as an issue um during the olympics for me as well because of my work with the Hudson's Bay Company which uh, as you know I'm sure uh, you know started as a fur trading company and the oldest company of that sort in Canada um and then we also we built programs for uh for the government of of Yukon and Northwest Territories and they were looking to try and integrate real fur into their program and this is a debate that uh that I had um, with several people in the industry, and it's, it's, it was a very heated um, discussion in my own house as well um, because of, uh, well, it, I, it wasn't really a debate because we were kind of both on the same side, but it's something my wife and I discussed at great length because um, of her view on, on using fur as well, which is, uh, of course, anti-fur. She's uh, very ethical in her considerations, um, and her position at Lush supports that as well. Um and I decided at that time that I would um, never implement fur in any programs that we worked with. Uh, and I would try and investigate to to determine why the, and if there are any advantages to using real fur, of which I've been able to identify none. Um, I agree with you that there I, I have heard the question about is uh, is fur a green product, and it's been cited as being, um, biodegradable which makes it green and coming from natural resources which makes it green uh, but from my research the um, how the fur is treated uh, so that it can be used uh, as a textile
2: uh, negates
3: its biodegradability and introduces toxins into the stream of the finished product that in again negate any claims for it to be green um, and would rather support uh, claims of greenwashing.
2: So based on your research, you believe fur is not a green product.
3: No. It's it's not, I mean, it's it's difficult because there's lots of products that start, green is a bit of a broad word, but that start environmentally conscious because in itself there are attributes of it that are arguably... Environmentally conscious. It is a natural product, I suppose, if you were to look at it that that way. But then, as soon as you treat it, you kind of destroy that argument. And to my knowledge, there's no way to use it um, without treating it. Um, in which case, uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, I, I certainly would never make any claims for that to be environmentally conscious. And I'm looking at eco-conscious fabrics every day. Uh, we're looking at developing them. It doesn't even fit on our on our scope anywhere as an environmentally conscious product.
2: How much of this comes down to people not knowing the options are there? Is this a matter of education or of a fear of investment? Why aren't we seeing more eco-friendly and ethically sourced products? Um, well,
3: in terms of ethical sourcing, I believe that's, that's in the midst of changing right now. I look at, uh, at, at, government tenders. In fact, I've been on, on their site this morning to look at tenders. Um, there is in every single case a component, um, whether it's the major decision making, arguably not, but it's certainly, uh, ethical sourcing is a major consideration that comes into play. And they are, um, uh, at least on paper, uh, they don't enter keen, uh, bids from, um, what might be called unethical sources or perhaps more appropriately uh, unproven ethical sources um, so that's uh, you know that's certainly changed over the last little while um, the, uh, the, the bought certain large bodies uh, corporations that are looking to purchase um, su- supplier guiding principles and ethical considerations have come into play there um, just look at uh, even the, the uh National Hockey League. Um they've just put out a statement saying that uh all of their sourcing is going to change to be uh more ethical uh and that will be a key consideration for who they purchase from. So in terms of ethical sourcing, I think that's being that's in the process of changing right now. I'm also seeing, you know, five years ago when we started working with recycled PET as a fabric It was very difficult to to find um there weren't a lot of people processing it and now it's much much easier to find in fact uh at the last world cup nike integrated um that all of the world cup uh jerseys would be built from uh from recycled fabrics um you know companies like coca-cola pepsi nestle anybody dealing with plastic bottles they see the advantage, uh, the marketing advantage of being able to say that, you know, their programs are built from the, the byproduct or waste of, of the, of the, the, the a primary product that they produce. So I wouldn't say that, that you're not seeing as much of it. I mean, we, we definitely see, uh, I think it's on the incline. I think in certain areas it's, it's declining. In certain product categories it's declining, um, predominantly because because of the economics, it is more expensive. Um, and I don't, I'm, I'm disappointed that on a manufacturing and a supply chain, those groups aren't willing to absorb some of the additional costs to be able to offer a better, more environmentally conscious product. Uh, we try and bridge that gap, or at least some of that gap in price, by working with a lower margin. By keeping our overhead lower, um, so that we can offer people an organic apple for nearly the same price as Apple. You know, we're not um, not apples, of course, but you, you get my
2: How have you been so successful in getting groups and companies to use ethically sourced products?
3: Um, that's a good question, Michael. Uh, I mean, we land a lot of our business and, and have a, a lot of our relationships are built on trust. They those clients come to us because they trust us. They trust that, that we've done the investigation to be able to offer a more ethical choice. So if I'm clearly saying to them, we will not work with this, I'll give you another example outside of fur, um polyvinyl chloride is a is a PVC, is a material we won't work with. Um why? Because it's it's one of the top ten toxins in, in regular use on the planet. When a client comes and says, I really want this product and they hand me a PVC piece. I'm obligated, I feel, to say, you know what? I understand what you're trying to do. Can we build this out of silicone? And if if I can prove to them that that piece, um, moving back to fur again, if I can if I can prove that the synthetic fur or the silicone versus PVC will function the same way, if it doesn't suffer from style, fit, function, design, or price, why wouldn't they choose the better choice? especially if they place their trust in us
2: and that's our consultation to learn more about kemp and ethical profiling visit ethicalprofiling.com that's it for this week folks i'd like to thank our guests as well as brad gates of gates triple a wildlife control for his ongoing support of this program from all of us at apva and defender radio thank you for joining us This is Michael Howey reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.